It's a real pleasure to introduce Senator Phil Graham. The times that I have the privilege to, uh, to introduce him, I like to tell a story about how uh, I, you know, I was never a Republican. For most of my life, I haven't been an affiliated voter. Um, when I turned 18, I lived in places like New Haven, Connecticut, Cambridge, Massachusetts, and New York City, places where Republicans were Democrats and Democrats were communists. But uh, in 1995, when the senator announced he was running for president, I, I registered Republican so that I could vote for him. Because Senator Graham, um, unlike uh, most of the people who run for president, was uh, very smart, very principled, and also had a clear commitment to cutting government spending that I don't think that we've seen in a presidential candidate since. And uh, I do sometimes get a little wistful thinking about, you know, what our country would be like if Phil Graham had been president from 1997 to, uh, to 2005. Uh, I'm sure he does as well. Um, but uh, the other night, last night, when I was speaking with the senator, I really thought about, you know, when I was growing up and coming of age. And I kind of grew up in the 70s. It was when I went to elementary school and high school. And that was the period of malaise and stagnation high interest rates, high inflation. And then uh, the 1980s were when I was in college and began my career. And it was a very different country that we were living in. Uh, prosperity was on the rise. And it occurred to me when I was introducing the senator at a reception last night that uh, he had an awful lot to do with that. Um, you know, there's not a consequential economic reform of the, of the 80s uh, and early 90s that didn't have his name on it, whether it's the Graham-Lotta tax cuts, the Graham-Rudman-Hollings uh, balanced budget program, or uh, Graham-Leach-Bliley uh, financial regulation reform. So it's always a pleasure to, uh, to welcome the Cato event, Senator Phil Graham. Peter, thank you very much. It's a great crowd. I'm very happy to be here. I'm a strong supporter of Cato because I believe in freedom. I don't know where it started. I don't know why I came to have the views I have, um, I guess from my parents and when I opened my first economics book, I was stunned that people knew these things. And so, in any case, I support Cato, and I appreciate the fact that you do. Now, I'm going to do something today which is probably unwise, and that is I'm going to try to talk about something that is related to one of the dullest subjects on Earth, statistics. But I'm going to talk about it because it's so critical. America has to get its facts straight. And our facts are not straight. And as a result, we're having debates about things that don't really exist. And this all started when I started to see statistics and hear arguments about the poverty rate has not changed since 1965. And yet, if you look at 
government statistics on the amount of money that the government transfers to the bottom 20% of American earning households, it adds up to $46,000 per household. So how could the poverty rate be the same as it was before the war on poverty started? And it struck me that something is wrong with government statistics. Uh, we hear America has not had a pay raise in 50 years. That wages in real dollar terms are not different than they were 50 years ago. But yet, uh, houses are one-third bigger. In every respect, they're better. The wealth of the average household is twice what it was 50 years ago. How is this possible? And it goes on and on to the debate about inequality. So that's what I want to talk about today. And so I want to start uh, basically with old Will Rogers adage that it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble, it's what you know that's not so. And I want to start with a very famous period that we all know a lot about because of the literature of the period, the novels that were written, the poems that were written. And this is about the Victorian era in England. Uh, and uh, we all know what terrible working conditions existed in Victorian England. Uh, we know it from Christmas Carol. Uh, we know about Scrooge and capitalism. We know about the worker on the street with his children picking up potatoes that fell off a truck, or I guess a wagon in those days. We know from the famous poem, The Song of the Shirt, Oh God, that bread should be so dear and flesh and blood so cheap. We know about the horrors of the Industrial Revolution, uh, novels written, poems written. Uh, it's one of the most famous periods in literature. Uh, Piketty, the French economist who wrote the book about capitalism in the 21st century, cites Victorian literature as evidence of the terrible plight of working people in the 1800s. And he justifies citing fiction because those horrors, he says, didn't spring into the minds of the author. They saw it, they wrote about it. And it is the chronicle of the history of that period. Now here's the problem. None of that is true. None of that's true. Um, and, and let me just start the story there. To put it in perspective, from about 1200 until 1800, wages in the world, at least the parts of the world that we have data about, Great Britain principally, did not change. 
for 600 years, craftsmen, skilled laborers, and their apprentices saw no change in their real wages. They went up in good times, they came bad, came down in bad times, but until about 1800, they did not change. From 1840 to 1900, wages rose by 130% in Great Britain. There is no period in world history prior to that period where working people prospered more and had more quality goods than they did from 1840 to 1900. And yet Christmas Carol was written and published in December of 1849. The Song of the Shirt was published in the same month. Um, how did it happen? How did people see all of the horrors of the Industrial Revolution and the conditions of workers and judge it to be a terrible period when in fact it was a golden age? And that, it, that knowing that history it has me interested in what is happening today. Well, what they did is, in Britain, the elite lived in nice houses in the country. Poor people lived in the forest or on the edge of villages that they never went to, or if they saw it, they rode through the middle of town. And the problem was when all of these poor people voluntarily left the farm and came to work in the factories, they were visible. Now, if you look at the period from 1840 to 1900, the average lifespan of a male grew by 20%. The average lifespan of a female grew by 25% in 60 years. Housing conditions were cramped because London saw its population grow from about a million to almost seven million in 60 years. But with the coming of the railroad, the development of suburbs, housing improved, infant mortality fell through the floor, uh, literacy grew by two thirds. In the midst of what was a golden era, people were viewing it as an era of a terrible uh, injustice to the working people of the world. In, fi in fact, uh, Frederick Engels, in his book about the plight of the working class in England, talks about how wonderful things were on the farm and how terrible things were in the city. And then, of course, he joined Marx to write uh, the Communist Manifesto, saying, workers of the world unite, you have nothing to lose but your chains. You have the whole world to gain. That was written in a period that was the most prosperous 60 years to that point in the history of mankind on this earth. So it is very easy to get confused. Now, I wanna talk about two areas where I see tremendous confusion 
in American statistics. Uh, in that period, the confusion came from people who were seeing poor people for the first time. The village that, uh, the little hut across the creek that you saw from the road at a distance, it looked beautiful. It was only when you got up close that the roof leaked, that there was open sewage, uh, that uh, children died every year. That was hidden from the public. But there's something different about now in that we have statistics. And let me go back to the example of poverty. When Lyndon Johnson started the war on poverty and started the process of spending money, transferring money, we were spending about 9,000, well, in fact, I'll give you the exact number. We were spending $9,677 uh, was going to the average household in the bottom 20% of the income distribution from the federal government. Today, that number is $45,389. And yet the statistics of the United States show that there has basically been no change in the poverty rate since 1965. How is it possible? Well, it's possible because, believe it or not, the Census Bureau in calculating poverty does not count two-thirds of the federal program. It counts only those programs that make a cash payment. So it doesn't count Medicare that goes to uh, poor people, Medicaid, food stamps because they get a card instead of cash. Uh, now it violates its own rule because it doesn't count the earned income tax credit, but when you take that $1.5 trillion a year that we spend at the federal, state, and local level in transfers to poor people, the poverty rate in the United States is not 12.9%, it's 3%. That is, so we're debating poverty based on numbers that are factually erroneous. Now let me give you another one. And uh, this one is about inequality. Um, you have seen the figures. In fact, it is accepted gospel in America by conservatives and liberals that there is a vast gap in income between high-income Americans and low-income Americans. In fact, the sense, if you look at earnings alone, the top quint, the, the government breaks data into uh, five 20% uh, groupings. So you got the bottom quintile, the second, the middle quintile, the fourth quintile, and the top quintile. Now, if you look at just earnings, the top quintile earns, produces, 
60 times as much as the bottom quintile. In fact, the top, average top quintile earner, top 20% of American households, earns $295,904. That was in the last year we have the full data, 2017. The average bottom quintile household earned $4,908. Now, that's 60 times as much. But when you look at the figures that are used to calculate income inequality, when the comparison is made, the census doesn't count any of the transfers in income distribution that it doesn't count in measuring poverty. So it doesn't count $1.5 trillion of government transfers basically to the bottom quintile and the second quintile. In fact, the bottom quintile now gets 90% of its income from government. 90%. Now, it's interesting to note that when the war on poverty started, that the labor force participation rate among Americans was pretty uniform. About 70% of the people in the bottom quintile worked. And some 95% of the people in the top quintile worked. That is, that were over 18, weren't retired, uh, and available workers. Today, because the war on poverty the labor force participation rate of the bottom quintile is down to 36%. So as government expenditures rose, the participation of the bottom 20% of the people in the economy basically was destroyed. But when you add in the transfer payments and the final missing piece of the puzzle in talking about how much income families have to spend, remarkably, the census does not count taxes. 33% of all the income earned in America is taken by federal, state, and local government. Most of it you never see because it's deducted from your wages. But yet the census does not take any account of taxes, and that has a massive distorting influence because two-thirds of that, those taxes are paid, or in fact, 80% of those taxes are paid by the top quintile and the second quintile. So when you bring taxes and transfer payments into the picture, the bottom quintile, the average family in the bottom quintile, when you add up the value of all their transfers. Now, I'm not talking about what government spends. I'm talking about what they get. I'm not talking about overhead or general government. I'm talking about how much they spent in food stamps, how much in benefits they got on Medicaid and Medicare, how much they got in aid to families with dependent children. The average household in the bottom quintile 
in 2017 got $50,901. The average household in the top quintile after taxes and transfer payments got $194,906. So the ratio between the top and bottom quintile in terms of income was not 60 to one, but 3.8 to one. Now look, you can debate forever how much income equality society should have. But when you're debating it, it makes a big difference whether the ratio is 60 to one or 3.8 to one. And as Americans, we need to get these facts straight. And I talked about this subject today because I've been working on this and I discovered someone else who was working on it through a Cato publication. And you may have seen a series of articles we've done in the Wall Street Journal, uh, and we've got a lot more coming. And we've gotten the OMB now to look at America's measure of poverty. And in every one of these cases, the president has the authority to change the way we gauge and release data. So we need to get our facts straight. And so much of our debate depends on it. Whatever our values are, if we're having a debate about something that's not factual, then the debate is distorted. Now, I know that was dull, but it's very important. And let me stop and throw it open, and I would be very glad to try to answer any question or talk about whatever y'all would like to talk about. Yes, sir. Here, All right, thank you. Again. All right, I'd appreciate if you could pull it close to you, pull the mic close to you. All right. All right, I'd like to have you comment, if you can, on the abuse of the American language. We have the um, we we have the misrepresentation of data um, and numbers that you mentioned, but also the corruption of the American language. Uh, the leftists confiscated, for example, the word progress into progressivism. We can't even say progress. We're all for progress and medicine and building lifestyles and whatnot, but you say progress and all of a sudden they want to accuse you of being a progressive, which is the massive confiscation of wealth through taxation and the redistribution by government. And the same way with, um, with, uh, with conservatism, Hold the mic close. Well. Same I, way with the same way with conservatism. Well, when I went to government. They just yelled at Hello. me. And I Hello. Right. Same way with conservative and conservatism. You know, conservative can be very good and very constructive, but when you get into conservatism, it. then it gets to be a no. Everything is no, and you won't move. Yeah. But, look, liberals, modern liberals, socialists dominate the language and pervert the language to their advantage. L the use of the term liberal is a perfect example. 
Liberal meant in the 19th century you believed in freedom and free markets and private property. Progressives, another term that they co-opted for socialist, adopted, went from socialists to progressives to liberals, forcing us into terms like conservative and libertarian. It used to be when they first started reporting on television, some of you will remember it as I do, that Republicans, the states and districts that went Republican were shown in blue and Democrats were shown in red. Now, why do you think they changed that? Because red is the color of the left. It's the color of socialist. So it is true. I don't know that anything can be done about it, but we can do something about these statistics. Yes, sir. Okay. Why don't I pick the next person and y'all take them a microphone? That's Who wants to be next? Well, I have a microphone oh, hold on. now. Let's do that before. I, I have a microphone yeah, now. Right can you there. hear me? Okay, go ahead. Yes, I'd like to talk about cause and effect. Uh, uh, you said before the war on poverty, uh, 30, 70% of the, the first uh, quintile were working, and now only 30%. Do you think if the uh, war on poverty didn't exist, that today 70% of the people in the bottom uh, quintile would still be working? I'm not sure I got it. Yeah, look, we destroyed the incentive of people to work, and they quit work. Um, and um, the problem with government policy is it affects people's behavior. It induces, through our tax system, it induces productive people to work less. It induces people to leave the labor market. When we expanded the eligibility for disability, we had huge numbers of white males leave the labor market, and we had the explosion of the opiate crisis because they automatically qualified for Medicare. And so you had all these people sitting in front of their television set uh, taking dope, uh, paid for by the taxpayer. And let me say, one of the things that, all, that I always told President Reagan that made him the happiest was under our program, under the Reagan Economic Program adopted in 1981, the economy was so powerful that the disability rolls fell, just as they're falling now. And I used to tell the president, this month, 84,000 people got up out of wheelchairs and went to work. <laughs> now, that, it, now look, it's a little, I have a little liberal license there, but the point is disability is a relative term. Um, and uh, 
you provide the incentives and people do incredible things. It's just like I'm trying to get the administration to change the law to encourage people to work longer. The most qualified people in America are quitting work every day when they turn 65 or 66. Uh, if, why should somebody who's working, I work, I'm 77, why do I have to pay Medicare taxes? Why do I have to pay Social Security taxes? Why can't I be exempt from the wage and hour laws? I'm certainly a consenting adult. The point is, we could, with just a few changes, we could bring millions of highly skilled workers into uh, the labor force. So government affects behavior, and one of the things you've got to look out for is in trying to help people, you hurt them. I used to say during the old balanced budget days, I wouldn't want the government we have if it were free. <laughs> because so often government hurts the very people you're trying to help. I once explained to my mother that um, if, if the welfare program we have now had existed when I was a child, I would never would have lived the life I lived because my mother would have been on welfare. Now she said, I would have never taken it. And I say, well, everybody you would know would be taking it. People would make fun of you for not taking it. And she said, if you ever tell anybody that I would have taken welfare, I'll, I'll denounce it. The point is maybe she wouldn't have, but a lot of people do. And it diminishes their lives. Yes. Thank you for exposing the income inequality scam that's been going on. Uh, that's the best explanation that, I, that I've heard. Is there a similar uh, situation with the affordability in housing crisis, uh, manipulation of statistics? What, what statistics? I'm sorry. Housing affordability crisis. Yeah, there, and, and there's, there's a problem with the consumer price index. Um, uh, the, if you look at what Americans have and you look at what has happened to real wages, there's no way you can match the two up. But I, I'm staying away from measures of inflation till after the election. Um, but in any case, it's interesting, we index the tax code and the brackets of the tax code now, where the government changes the, uh, the market basket of goods that are being measured consistently over and over and over and over again, contemporaneously it's called. But we don't do that with the price index that we use to pay out entitlements. Uh, it seems to me that inflation is inflation. We need an accurate measure. But so yeah, there's a problem with all these statistics. And look, I'm not. I don't. I used to think that conspiracies worked and existed maybe in with early Christians, but that people cheat and so uh, uh, they don't work. 
But when you look at the way government has made decisions about not, what, not counting taxes, when you're looking at people's spendable income, how, I, I don't understand how that decision was made. And I've asked uh, uh, the Library of Congress to go back and identify when those decisions were made, what the justification was, and who made them. Uh, and again, the point is not to point out some deep state. The point is we need to fix these things. Yeah. Yes, sir. Right here. And if somebody else hold up their hand, we'll bring them to the other mic. And then I'm going, yes, right over okay. there. All right. Well, I've okay. got one here. McKinsey and Company, the world's preeminent uh, consulting company, has just put out a... Pull the uh, mic a little closer uh, to uh, you. McKinsey, I'm sorry. Okay. So McKinsey and Company has just put out a... Very good analysis on, on poverty globally, right, in the G8. And on a pre-tax basis, the U.S. is actually quite good, second in the world to Canada, on a pre-tax basis for poverty. On a post-tax basis, the U.S. is by far the worst in the world. So how does this relate to what you just said? Tell me what he said. I'm sorry. <laughs> Yeah, look, you've seen all this stuff. We have the most unequal distribution of wealth in the world. It's not valid. Uh, when you take into account all the transfer payments and taxes, we fall right in the middle of the top seven of the most prosperous countries in the world. Um, so, uh, again, all of these statistics suffer from the same problem. When we submit data to OECD that puts out these so-called genie curves, we don't include two-thirds of all federal spending. France includes private retirement payments. I mean, these, these uh, comparisons are just bunk. And again, people take them seriously. That's the problem. Yes, sir. I don't know why I'm not hearing people today. I have all my hearing aids. I'll, I'll try to sound off. I think it's impossible for a group of reasonably intelligent people. Hold on, I'm gonna come down. Sorry. <laughs> I hear my wife, but she's <laughs> speaking loudly. Yeah, go ahead, I got okay. it. I think it's impossible for Right a, up uh, next to you. Okay. Right up next to your mouth. Fine. Yeah. Okay. I think it's impossible for a reasonably intelligent group of people to hear the uh, spread between statistics that you've provided and think anything other than conspiracy. It, it's just impossible. Uh, it, it can't be attributed to data slippage. The, the variance is too great. And I'm... I'm hearken to think about the creation of the social security system and, and the fact that the first date for retirement was 62. That happened to be proximate to the age of the average death at that time. So that FDR, when he created that, fixed into the program early deaths. And the... the uh, the amount that is accrued for, for those of us in Social Security 
is not a personal asset, so it doesn't become part of your estate. It's passed into the system. Yeah. When you have distinctions, such as you uh, reported, you have to think that it's done to manipulate information, and, and it's passed on in textbooks. It's passed on in literature that we read. You go to Barnes & Noble and see popular books on, on economics, and half the data is completely, completely yeah. wrong. Well, let, I, first of all, I, what I think happened is Republicans have tended to hate government, and so we've never spent the time and energy to get into the heart of government and understand how it works. Democrats love government, and so they people government agencies by a natural selection process, not by any conspiracy. And so if you're working for the government and you're a strong supporter of the poverty program and you want the government to get more involved and you're working in the Bureau of Labor Statistics and you're making a decision when a new program comes in and the program is, say, food stamps, um, and you make a decision, well, food stamps are not cash, and so they're not income. Now, they're a credit card now, but forget that. The point is, there has been a consistent set of decisions made that have systematically biased the statistical base by which we all discuss problems. And that needs to be fixed, desperately needs to be fixed. I see that I'm about to be stopped. Thank you.